Hey there, newly minted ensigns, soon-to-be queens, and lovers of Spumoni ice cream. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, your host, and for those of you who have been following this podcast, you know that I've recently moved to Seattle, Washington, where I've just begun a new position as a postdoctoral researcher at UW's astrobiology program. With my new position come new power and new responsibilities. And with that new power, one of the first things I did was invite my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Gao, to come give a talk in my department. Peter came to talk about his astrobiology-related work, specifically about the creation of oxygen false positive biosignatures. Now, what does that mean? A false positive means you think that you've found what you're looking for. You think you've found life, but you really haven't. It's a lie. Or, as a certain Romulan would say, it's a fake! That oxygen didn't come from life. Now, we normally think of oxygen as a good biosignature, as something that just screams, hey, there's life over here, because virtually all of the oxygen in our atmosphere came from life. Now, you may be familiar with oxygen as a necessity, as something you just need to breathe in about once every second. But to other forms of life, oxygen is a waste product to be discarded into the atmosphere. That kind of life is photosynthetic life, or more specifically, oxygenic photosynthetic life, photosynthetic life that makes oxygen by splitting water. But Peter's research shows how you can get lots of oxygen in a planet's atmosphere without life, especially for an atmosphere of a planet that orbits an M-dwarf, the smallest, dimmest, reddest kind of star. So I asked Peter, how can you make abiotic oxygen? So... In some ways, in similar ways to what plants do. So as, as you said, Mike, plants split water. And they do this by using light from the sun. They use two visible photons. Visible means the wavelength of the photons is in the visible range, the range of light that we can see. They use two of these photons added together to break the strong bond of an H2O molecule. Now, two visible photons are fairly energetic but so is one UV photon. UV photons have a shorter wavelength and therefore a larger energy. So one way you can break water is you use UV photons from the sun. UV photons are fairly powerful. You know that anytime you get a sunburn and that breaks it, giving you a free oxygen atom. Now that atom can react with another atom to create O2, which is oxygen gas, is the gas we breathe. So that's one way to do it. Uh, another way to do it, which is what my research was about, was looking at CO2. Now, CO2, of course, contains oxygen, at least oxygen atoms within the CO2 molecule. And similarly, you can break a CO2 molecule with UV photons. 
Now the problem is once you do this, uh, you have CO, which is which is not that good, and you have a free oxygen atom, which can then go on and form O2 as we discussed before. But there are chemical cycles that will turn that O2 back into CO2. It's a fairly complicated process involving multiple different molecules, including the HO2 molecule or the hydroperoxyl radical. And the reason we call it a radical is because it's super reactive. And that's why it participates uh, in this chemical cycle that takes CO and O2 and combines it back into uh, CO2. Now, this cycle is active on, for example, Mars, which has a CO2 atmosphere, a CO2 atmosphere which you would expect to go away because of this uh, bombardment by UV photons, but doesn't because of this chemical cycle. So what I found is that around Amdorf's, this cycle takes uh, a, a different turn. And one thing to note is that the fate of water on planets around Amdorf's is a bit uncertain. There's been previous research showing that water could be lost from these worlds because of atmospheric escape. So these atmospheres will essentially lose their hydrogen because you break the molecule to contain hydrogen and once it's freed, hydrogen is very light, it will just buzz off into space. And so with very little water in these atmospheres, the cycle that regenerates CO2 will fail. And so what you end up with is some CO2, some CO, and also some O2. And when I say some, I mean on the order of potentially 20%, same as that of Earth. Yeah, and so that's bad because if we are looking at these atmospheres and we find, oh, it's got 20% oxygen, we might mistake it for life, even though it was made by the breakdown of CO2 into CO and O2. That's right. Now, Luckily, there's ways to combat this, and this is only one, by the way, this is only one way you can generate abiotic oxygen. There's a couple of other ways, which I uh, won't go into, but it's, it's out there. Uh, you can read about it. Um, the way to combat this is to note that these atmospheres would have very little water, which is not true of Earth. If you look at Earth, if you look at a spectrum of Earth, you'll see lots of features that are due to water. So if you look at these planets, you essentially see features due to CO2, perhaps some oxygen or ozone, maybe CO, but you will not see any water. And so work like mine and those of my colleagues help in not only saying what can cause abiotic oxygen, but also in ways that you can avoid thinking of that as a real biosignature. So, we want to be able to place this oxygen detection, this future potential oxygen detection in some kind of context. And what you're saying is that if you find water in the atmosphere in addition to the oxygen, it's giving you a context that's saying it wasn't because of CO2 breakdown by UV light, because the water there should regenerate the CO2 through the reaction with the HO2 radical, which is a derivative of water and not to be confused with water itself, but highly associated with water. So this HO2 radical would remake the CO2. And so therefore the oxygen is from something else and is perhaps life. So that, that oxygen becomes a stronger biosignature if you find it in combination with water in the atmosphere. That's right. So if you really want to look for life on another planet, what you have to do is look for biosignatures with an S at the end. 
you really need to look at multiple chemical species at least. So O2 is not enough. O2 and water is a stronger case. O2 and methane, anything else that has a lot of hydrogen attached to it, is a good thing because oxygen and hydrogen-heavy molecules don't mix very well. They would react. And so if you see these two molecules present in detectable amounts in these atmospheres, it means something is happening to keep them essentially out of equilibrium, and that something could be life. Yeah, so Peter, basically what you're saying is that we've got these molecules in the atmosphere, oxygen and methane, oxygen being O2, methane being CH4, which rapidly interact with each other and destroy each other, annihilate each other. But the thing is, on Earth, we've got fluxes of each of them coming out from biology. So the archaea in your stomach, perhaps, are making methane, and the plants all around us are making oxygen. And even though they are destroying each other in the atmosphere, there's this constant resupply from biology. And so when you want to go and look for life around an exoplanet, you are looking for these molecules that should be diminishing each other, but you still see them. And so therefore there must be a constant flux from something else. And because geological fluxes tend to be a lot smaller than biological ones, at least taking Earth as an example, then if you find a, that a large flux is needed to resupply the atmosphere with certain gases that are out of equilibrium with each other, hence try to destroy each other, then you can place a larger probability that those gases came from life rather than non-life. So, ready for some Star Trek? Yes. Okay, well, a lot of Star Trek is coming your way, and we are going to start with a postcard from our good friend, Dr. James T. Keene. Now, I sent an email to a bunch of people asking for digital postcards for Strange New Worlds, asking for their reactions to the Short Trek episode Runaway. Only James sent me a postcard. Um, and I didn't send you a request for a postcard because I knew you were coming here and that we could talk about Runaway in person and respond to the postcards that we got. We only have James, but the great thing about James is that he just went on and on and on. I intended each postcard to be somewhere between one and three minutes long. James sent me nearly 14 minutes of audio. Well, some of it was his dog barking too, but, <laughs> but we've got a lot of audio from James that we can respond to. So Peter, I'm going to ask you the questions that I asked James, um, then we're going to hear what James had to say, and then we'll, we'll get to hear your thoughts as well. So the first question that I asked was, if you could sum up the episode Runaway in a single word or phrase, what would it be? If I were to sum up Runaway in a single word or phrase, it would be about growth. In this really short episode, at only 15 minutes, it was still surprisingly packed. And we got to see both Tilly and Poe grow and gain confidence about themselves and get strength from one another that helped them each grow and rise to meet the challenges that they both have to face in the near future with Tilly going into the command training program and Poe becoming queen of Zahia. Yeah, I agree with James. I would say growth is a perfect description for this episode. Perhaps another way of saying it, which is related to growth, is 
just trying to get over some fears that you have or some doubt you have about yourself. I thought clearly they were doing a parallel journey of Tilly and Poe, uh, one thinking about the academy and the other one about being royalty, slightly different, uh, but both going up against a bigger role than they have had in the past and trying to see themselves in that role despite their own doubts and anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Growing past fear. And there's this scene where Tilly is, I don't know, the equivalent of 23rd century Skyping with her mom. And her mom is saying, you know, like, you backed away from something that you were afraid of before, and I don't want the command training program to be like that for you. Peter, in your career, have you ever encountered something that you were super afraid to do? And how did you handle that? That's a really good question. Um, there was a lot of things. <laughs> there was a lot of things I was afraid to do. I would say the biggest thing that I've always been a bit uh, anxious about, uh, which I still haven't done, and I want to do, is uh, outreach. Um, well, you're doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. That's <laughs> true. I guess outreach in the, in the very specific sense of giving a public lecture. So do you think you're going to take anything away from this episode? Was it impactful in any way that might help you overcome this fear of public lectures? Um, I think at the end of the day, I still have to think through my own fears, just as they have. I'm glad to see that they fought through their fears, and or at least partly, and got to the other side and decided on what to do. There's been a couple of times where, even though I was afraid of something, I decided to say yes. Uh, a lot of times I realized that this is a necessary experience, an opportunity that I must undertake to get uh, more exposure and, and get more people interested in my science. And so I think one day I'll just say yes, even though it terrifies me and I have no choice but to do the talk and I probably really enjoy it. Awesome. All right. So my second question to James was, Tilly and Poe are both young and insanely brilliant people. What did you like best about their relationship? So Tilly and Poe are both young and insanely brilliant people. And I think that is so great to see. We had two very technically minded, brilliant people working together, or at least interacting in a positive way where they both benefited from each other and were both able to come out of this mini episode stronger and ready to face the challenges that uh, lay before them. Um, I like that they could bond over both being insanely crazy smart, um, talking about creating a universal translator at age nine or replicating Spumoni ice cream. And Tilly's awkwardness sort of helped break the tension between the two of them in a way that a more rigid character may not have been able to. I really like that Poe, at some point, I forget exactly the context, she's lamenting to Tilly and mentions that she is just trying to be extraordinary. And I think that is a great mentality. And I, I really love that that was just said so succinctly. Um, you know, these two brilliant people trying to be the best that they can, being the best people, being the best leaders, being the best scientists or engineers. And I thought that was great to, to really pursue that. And 
now the dogs are barking. So Peter, what did you like about Tilly and Poe's relationship? I like that they were essentially at similar stages in their life. They were able to have a real conversation about the realities they were facing, even though they had just met and are of two different species. <laughs> I thought they, they were great foils for each other. They bounced ideas off of each other and made each other realize that what they have done in the past makes them strong and really frame their past achievements as major achievements instead of just saying, oh, I just did this in the past. Uh, no big deal. What I fear is the future, you know. Yeah, I think that's that's one, one part I liked, yeah. So often in the first season of Discovery, we saw Tilly playing the role of the youngest, the cadet, the quote-unquote grad student to this crew of very highly experienced officers. And now Tilly has somebody her age, uh, but almost a little bit less mature or a little bit younger, like a little sister. And Tilly is able to teach her some things, act as a mentor, just like Michael was a mentor to her, and learn from that experience. And I think that's that speaks to me because I think that we as academics also learn a lot through the efforts we take to mentoring younger students and uh, teaching as well and interacting with people who are taking a different look at life, who are just maybe a few years younger than us, but, uh, but teach us through our reflections on how to disseminate information and help people uh, grow into, into flourishing scientists. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, it's not something that's codified in science. It's just something that happens that within a group, older grad students will begin advising the younger ones, uh, usually informally, sometimes more formally, through uh, projects. And I think it really adds to both of their experiences. And I guess Starfleet crews could be the same way too. All right, so the, the next question that I asked James was about Poe's intense connection to her homeworld Zahia. And James said... Regarding Poe's connection to her homeworld, um, I thought that was an interesting concept that Poe mentioned, that she and her people were born at the same time as her planet, until he quickly commented, no, that's probably not true, something about the temperature, and this could lead to a whole episode of Strange New Worlds about when can life emerge on a planet. Um, Tilly is indeed correct. Can't really have life when you have a magma ocean, right when the planet forms. But it, it comes across initially as some sort of theological perspective. But by the end of the episode, when you learn that she's about to become the queen of the planet, it makes a bit more sense. It's not only this intense personal connection, but she feels a responsibility towards her planet. Yeah, I mean, James is absolutely right that uh, during the planet formation stage, the planet is very hot, constantly being bombarded by meteorites, planetesimals that are essentially building up the planet. So it's, in fact, it's hard to say when a planet forms, especially since it takes so long to form in the first place. So when is a planet actually born? So how do you create life or how do you generate life on a planet that is still molten and being bombarded you know that's not really explained but i don't think that was the point of that fact that poe mentioned i felt like it was very sci-fi she 
gave an answer. She said something that was completely alien to us. It was unexplained. She didn't really tell us more about it. And we're just left with a mystery. What does she mean by that? Was it literal or was it more perhaps, uh, perhaps religious, uh, perhaps more cultural? And that is completely fine because the aliens do not owe us an explanation of their culture. Um, although perhaps they are related to a magma ocean since Poe's blood was the color of magma and was steaming. So who knows? <laughs> On the other hand, uh, Tilly did touch it and it was, she was fine. So <laughs> what else? yeah, aliens, aliens. All right. Um, then I asked James to pick a quote from the following list of quotes that I pulled out from the episode. James decided to pick. Does it function by compensating for the position and direction of the subject's subatomic particles? Which is, at least for scientists, of course, referencing the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And so the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is a quantum mechanical principle that says you cannot know both the position and speed or momentum, or in this case, direction, of a subatomic particle. You can't know both. And that is a fundamental problem for transporters, because if you want to disassemble someone and then put them back together, you need to know every single atom in that person, where it is and how it's moving precisely. And Star Trek gets around this in TNG and elsewhere by mentioning that they have this thing called the Heisenberg Compensator. And so Poe's line is effectively saying, does this work by having a Heisenberg Compensator? I thought that was a great bit of Star Trek techno babble and the sort of small references that are great at linking Discovery back into the, the larger canon. And then James just became James and went into Star Trek encyclopedia mode and started talking about all of the different Star Trek connections that he saw in the episode Runaway. Other things that I thought aren't in Mike's list for quotes and references that were great. Well, one is that the replicator replies back to Tilly's request for the quadruple espresso by saying, have a glorious day. And I, I laughed. It made me think just so much of the mere universe and making the empire glorious again. Um, the other little techno babble bit that I liked is so Poe, part of the reason she ran away is because she developed this technology to, quote, recrystallize dilithium. And this immediately stuck with me because we just recently watched Star Trek IV, uh, The Voyage Home. And part of the plot of that movie is they've traveled back in time with their uh, Klingon bird of prey. And in the process, they have completely drained or destroyed their dilithium crystals in the Klingon bird of prey. So they can't get back. And so they go about breaking into a nuclear nuclear vessel and uh, getting some sort of radiation that can magically recrystallize them. But Scotty does say that at that time in Star Trek IV, they cannot recrystallize dilithium. And so by Poe mentioning this, it ties into this sort of bigger problem about dilithium being a, a resource that has to be mined and is not renewable. Um, although I would note that by the time of Next Generation, I think they've mentioned a few times that the dilithium in the Enterprise-D is recrystallized in the warp engine. 
like in the frame. I remember this from actually from Scotty again, from the episode Relics, where they find Scotty on the Dyson Sphere and they bring him aboard and he's messing with the warp core and he pulls out the dilithium crystals and the forge is like, what the hell are you doing? And mentions something about them being recrystallized as they're being used or something. And part of me wonders, well, what if in the, I guess, hundred years since Discovery and TNG, it's probably more than a hundred years, what if Zahia joins Starfleet or the Federation and Poe's technology goes from being something only for Zahia and at first maybe only kept to Poe to something that's widely used. Um, I took a bunch of notes. I actually wrote a bunch down. Some of the other random things I thought I'd mention. I really liked, they showed Tilly in, and Poe in Tilly's room quite a bit. I do find it funny that it looks like there's still two beds. We don't know this, but there, it looks like Tilly and Burnham still room together, which I find kind of funny given that she's now Tilly is now an ensign, and Burnham is, I think, back to being a commander. They share a room, I guess. Room maybe is a little bit sparse on this giant Crossfield-class starship. But um, that aside, what I thought was really cute was... Um, she had a framed picture of both her and Michael, which I thought was really nice. Um, she also had a, a little globe of Jupiter, um, and I the, you can actually go buy those globes of Jupiter if you really want. I, I just like having little astronomy references throughout. Um, the food dispensers. So when Tilly is about to run into Poe for the first time, Poe, through magical... Um, ability to interfere with electronics starts having the food dispensers chuck out a bunch of food sort of littering the entire mess hall um something ha very similar happens in an animated series episode and i only know this because i recently started watching the animated series for the first time and there's an episode where the enterprise like becomes a practical joker like literally the computer of the enterprise starts playing practical jokes on the crew and at some point just starts chucking food out of the food dispensers so I don't know if that was an intentional reference, but it's something I caught. Last thing. Oh, no, there's one more thing, then I'll get the last thing. The first thing I wrote down is actually one of the first lines, the computer talking in Discovery mentions that it's the end of Shift 5. And for whatever reason, that made me think back to The Next Generation, because in one episode where Picard is relieved of duty and is off, dealing with Cardassians, there's this whole discussion about being on a three-shift or four-shift rotation. We now have confirmation that Discovery is at least on a five-shift rotation. It's just the things that come to mind when you have the Star Trek encyclopedia on your bookshelf. Um, lastly, so I thought this was a great episode, and I'm glad it was 15 minutes. It, it needed that much time to get what it wanted to do. I was kind of worried with these short treks that they might be really short and not able to cover a complete plot line. But this one really did. And in fact, I thought this would have made a really good standalone episode. I could completely picture this filling up a whole 40 or 50 minute episode. And it's such an iconic, like classic Star Trek plot line. You have, you have an alien who is dealing with technobabble stuff that involve the evolution of its planet growing 
dealing with a technological problem, dealing with a social problem, and you get to witness how Starfleet, this idealized organization, would approach it, all overlaid in this context of Tilly just becoming an ensign and going into this uh, command training program, this relatively small story. So you have this big picture, big morals, but it can all be distilled down to one or two people and their individual trials. <laughs> well, that was a lot of Star Trek and science right there. Mostly Star Trek, James just being so knowledgeable about every series, including the animated series, which I haven't really watched. I think I've seen like two episodes. Um, Peter, have you seen the animated Zero. series? Zero. Yeah. <laughs> so James is far above us in, in his knowledge of that. Um, do you have any closing thoughts on Runaway? Yeah, I thought Runaway was just a very nice character episode. And while Discovery has done a great job developing his characters, the kind of character episodes we've seen in past treks where it will be a standalone episode focusing on a single character hasn't really been seen since uh, Discovery is so serialized. Another interesting idea I thought was the entire episode revolved around Tilly and she didn't tell anybody about this. So this could have happened any time during Discovery season one or two, although we have a general idea since she's now an ensign. But it just means that if we watch an episode of Discovery and we don't really see Saru or if we don't really see Stamets, they could be off having their own little adventures that we will never know about and that nobody on the crew would know about. So that's something to think about. Well, that concludes episode 53 of Strange New Worlds. I want to say a big thank you to James T. Keen for his outstanding review of the Short Treks episode Runaway. I think if he was seeking to be extraordinary, he certainly nailed it. And thank you to Peter Gao for joining me up in Seattle to talk about his research on oxygen false positive biosignatures, which I hope you learned something about today, and for helping me respond to James's thoughts on Runaway. It was fascinating to hear my two friends' thoughts on this brilliantly worked 15-minute standalone Star Trek episode. Next time on Strange New Worlds, I'm taking you with me to Knoxville, Tennessee for the 2018 Division for Planetary Sciences meeting of the American Astronomical Society. Let's see what's out there. You're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. These are postcards from the Short Trek episode, Runaway. Mike, I'm half envisioning you taking all of us saying this and stitching it together like that last episode, the last line, the last episode of Star Trek Enterprise, the episode that doesn't exist.